We read God's Word in Colossians 3. We'll read the first 17 verses of that chapter. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. This far we read the Word of God. We call your attention this evening to the 15th verse of this chapter. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. The Apostle Paul in the context referred to the possibility of quarrels. If any man have a quarrel against any, he said in verse 13, he means they're a complaint or an allegation of blame. And the question at the outset of the sermon this evening is, what do you do, what do I do, when one has a quarrel, a contention, a complaint, an allegation of wrongdoing against another? I know what our nature would do. Our nature would say, you are wrong. Our nature would say, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to insist you acknowledge you're wrong. I'm going to insist that you admit you're wrong, fix your wrong, and make it right. 
And notice what the Holy Spirit says in the context. Four things. If any man have a quarrel against any, forbear, forgive, put on charity, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It becomes immediately evident, I trust it does to you too, that the quarrel then of which the context is speaking is not that of a gross transgression. This is not the path to follow when I've seen a brother or sister fall into such a sin as highly offends the Lord Jesus Christ and as requires me to go to him or her, indeed seeking his or her repentance. It must be that the Holy Spirit has a different kind of sin in mind. Not a gross sin. But the weaknesses, the sins that we all commit, maybe even daily, against one another. Forbear, forgive, put on charity, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. So what would you do this week? If one with whom you ate and drank at the table of the Lord this morning, with whom you had fellowship, with whom you are, to use the words of the text, called in one body, if this week you have a quarrel against him or her, a complaint or an allegation of wrongdoing on a matter that is not large, not gross, at the same time, You need to address it. Do you address it with Him? Do you address it with yourself? You said today at the table of the Lord that you were of the same faith. You said you were of the same body. You said you had the same Lord and Savior. Now, what will you do in how you treat or respond to the sin Or sometimes it isn't even a sin. Sometimes it's the way he or she is. And now I'm frustrated with him or her. Of the fellow member of the body of Christ. Let's understand what the injunction of the Holy Spirit in our text is. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let's understand again from the outset. That this is not the way to deal with public, gross sin which has insulted our Lord and brings dishonor to Him and to the church, but it's how I'm to deal with my brother or sister when I see in him or her a weakness. And remember that maybe he, she's, or she sees in me a weakness. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To that I call your attention this evening, letting God's peace rule. Notice first of all the meaning Second, the admonition. And third, the incentive. A central concept of the text evidently is peace. And we need to know what peace is, and then we need to know even more what God's peace is. Peace is harmony, tranquility, and calm. It's what makes relationships 
possible. It's the atmosphere in which relationships can develop and can grow. It is the opposite of war. Relationships can't develop and grow in war. I mean when there's war between two, between husband and wife, between brother or sister, between parent or child, with whom there should be peace. When there there is tension, relationships cannot grow. Covenant fellowship is not enjoyed and experienced. There is a war that the child of God knows of, not only now in our own being, between the old and the new man, but the war of the believer against the unbeliever, and the godly against the ungodly. There is an awareness on our part that there is an antithesis we are to live, but within the body, there cannot be war. And when there is war, it will be to the detriment of the body itself. And the whole of medicine and medical science is based on that very premise. When in your body, different parts of the body are not working together the way they ought. There's detriment to the body. We need to address that. Likewise, in the church of Jesus Christ. Peace is the harmony, the calm, the relationship developing atmosphere that comes when people put their differences aside, particularly when one says, it doesn't have to be my way. Not in this matter. It doesn't have to be my way. Peace is harmony and tranquility. The text speaks of God's Four things about that. In the first place, the idea is that this peace comes from God. It has its source in God. And immediately you understand that this then must be genuine peace. For God, the triune God, is a God of peace. In Him, not just one person and one being. Three persons in one being. There's a covenant life. There's a relationship. And it's characterized by peace. Father and Son do not war against each other. Nor does the Holy Spirit complain or quarrel with Father and Son. But there is perfect harmony. This peace that is God's own peace. That He Himself enjoys within His triune being. He gives us. From Him it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. And this is an amazing Gospel truth. For we do not have peace with God by nature. Sin has destroyed it. What Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. In eating of the forbidden fruit. And the consequences that their sin had. Not only for them but for the whole human race of which Adam was head. Involved the destruction of peace. We are at war with God. And he rightly would be at war with us if he did not see us covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. But he gives us peace. And he says to us who were his enemies, I put aside my wrath. Not without justice being satisfied, we understand. I put aside my wrath and I bring you into covenant fellowship with me. Again, 
Now, your sins are not held against you. Now, you can have relationships with each other. Now, with Jehovah God also. That first, it is the peace that comes from God. Secondly, you cannot then understand this peace apart from understanding the work of Jesus Christ our Lord in earning and bestowing it. For if Jehovah God, being a just and righteous God, does not put aside enmity, does not say to somebody, you're at war with me and I'll just sort of overlook it, but if He says my justice must be satisfied, then call to mind again, as you did this morning, His grace in sending Jesus Christ into our flesh, taking our sins and curse upon Himself, and going to the death of the cross, there to earn peace. And He did earn it. He didn't just try earning it. He earned it in full, because on the cross, He bore in full the wrath of God for sin. And now He arose. He sits at God's right hand. He poured out His Holy Spirit that in His resurrection life, as the Holy Spirit applies the blessings of that life to you and to me, we might have peace. As the Apostle says in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The third place, this peace of God is not then just a peace that I have with God, and you have with God, and you have with God, but it leaves each of us individually unrelated to each other. It is a peace that He gives each one of us in the body. And the text underscores that, to which also ye are called in one body. That is, you're called to peace. And the fact that you are in one body means that that peace is to be experienced and enjoyed within the body. Having saved His church, Jesus Christ did not intend that there be strife and animosity in His church. Now, I realized as I'm preparing this sermon, there are statements I make that a person could say, just a minute. Yes, He ordained that there be doctrinal controversies. Yes, He ordained that there be other issues that rise that will cause friction in the church. And that point I get, that's just not the perspective that the Holy Spirit has in our text. It's not the issue that the text has in the foreground. Yes, indeed, our Lord knows that there will be controversy in His church. But this is a word that comes to us even in the midst of controversy. Aim for peace. The point is that I must not insist, whether there's controversy or some other issue that comes up, that I get my way. I must not insist that whatever is on my agenda be on your agenda and be the first thing that is dealt with. I must be willing to deny myself for the sake of peace and harmony in the church. And I'll say once again, as has been said already, that then it's clear we're not talking about a situation in which there is 
doctrinal controversy over cardinal doctrines. And we're also not talking about a situation in which your brother or sister walks in sin. But let us labor for peace in the church. And the fourth thing to say about this peace of God is that very evidently, from all I've said to this point, it is of a different quality and character than any other peace you've ever known. A higher quality and character. Divine peace in the church of Jesus Christ is a blessing of salvation for which our Lord died and gives us. This isn't the world's idea of peace. And so the point of the text is not merely to say just be quiet. And the point of the text is not merely to say tolerate everyone that's loved. Don't worry about what they're doing. Focus only on you and just live with whatever is. That's not the point of the text. But the point of the text is to say instead of insisting on it being my way, aim for peace. This is the peace that Jesus Christ says we have in Him, as He said to the disciples in John 16, This is the peace that passes understanding, as the Apostle speaks of in Philippians 4, verse 7. It's a peace that the Gospel proclaims. You won't hear this peace anywhere else. It's a peace you enjoy in the way of believing the gospel that is preached. And it's not a peace you can enjoy in any other way. It's a peace, therefore, that we enjoyed and we manifested this morning as we ate together of the supper of our Lord. That is the peace of which the text speaks. And the calling or that the text sets forth now regarding that peace is let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The Greek word translated rule here means to be an umpire. It is the only place in the New Testament where that verb is used, although there are two places where a related noun is used. In 1 Corinthians 9.24 and in Philippians 3.14, both places translated prize. And that's going to be a clue as to how we are to understand this idea that peace is to be the umpire when we have quarrels one with another. The use of this word is striking because both here as well as in Philippians and in 1 Corinthians, the apostle indicates that he knows very well about those games, the Olympic games and all the other sporting games that the Grecians so gave themselves over to and were interested in. And not only does he know about it, but the church of Jesus Christ in Colossa, in Philippi, and in Corinth knew about them as well. But also, the use of the word is is striking because usually when we think of rule, we think of oversight, making laws, Enforcing decisions, giving out penalties, and that's not so much the focus of the rule of which the text is speaking, it's the work of an umpire. I'm going to say again then that the idea of the text is that there be peace, 
Not with regard to when one walks in sin, but as we're living our Christian life side by side and with each other. For that's what two are doing in the games. Especially the games that the Apostle has in mind are not basketball games. They're not football games. The rule, the umpiring of which the text is speaking, is not referring to the one who says, who blows the whistle and says, you fouled him. And you have a false start. And in a hockey game or in a soccer game, you did something and now you get a penalty or an infraction. Especially, it's a race. Two are running side by side. Two have the same goal. Isn't that often how it is in the body of Christ, even when there's a quarrel between one or another? We have the same goal. We ought to, and often we do, and the goal is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although sometimes, though that ought to be our goal, our goal becomes exalting, promoting ourself, defending ourselves, and that's when there's a quarrel. And the Holy Spirit says it's at that very point that you must let peace rule. Settle your quarrels by asking the question, what can I do for peace? Now I say again, two men are running a race. Two men finish the finish line, reach the finish line at exactly the same time. And you are one of them. And not only are you the one who is running the race and have finished the race at exactly the same time as another, and only one can get the prize, but you are to be the umpire and determine the winner. And how are you going to do that? My nature? I finished as quickly as you did. My nature? I was actually ahead of you. The Holy Spirit, it's not about you, it's not about me, let peace be the umpire. Now in order that peace do that, you see that peace must be in our heart, and that's part of the calling too, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. This isn't merely a matter of how I should act outwardly, alright, I am myth. But I'll let you have your way. That was not peace in the heart. Peace in the heart says, I seek you. I seek your well-being. It doesn't have to be me. I'm not the one who has to come out ahead. In my heart, I will forget about the fact that I finished At the same moment you did. In my heart. I will gladly. Give you. The prize. Let the peace of God. Rule. In your hearts. That's the meaning. Of the word of God. In our text. Now it comes to us. In the form of an admonition. In the form of an imperative. In the first place, we should appreciate the necessity of this. 
And that is that the Holy Spirit to the church of God, not only at Colossae, but at every place and at every time, says there's a danger that this won't happen. There is a very real danger that in the body, you will seek yourself. The very real danger, of course, is rooted in the fact that there is in us both a new man and an old man. And that was the preceding context. And it's because there is in us an old man that even such things as fornication and uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, can at times characterize us. Gross sins which need to be dealt with in a different way uh, than our text is speaking of. And if those do, then how much more often won't there be a me first, a my way attitude, our old man. And so we're going to, by nature, seek our advantage in a quarrel. We're going to become jealous. We're going to desire revenge. We're going to be motivated by insisting that my rights must not be violated. We're going to live in a way that will leave the brother or the sister hurt. And cause friction and discord and disharmony. In the body of Christ, the new man in us forbears his long suffering, forgives, says, This is a small thing in comparison to what my Lord did for me. Puts on charity. The idea of putting on there puts on love, charity, one toward another. As my garment, I'm going to wear love. And if I wear love as my external garment, then I'd better have the peace of God that rules in my heart. So, that first of all is to the necessity. There's a continual need for the church of Jesus Christ to remember to live out of the power of the new man. In the second place, the admonition is necessary because of what the text goes on to say, to the which also ye are called in one body. It's not a small thing with the Lord Jesus Christ how we live and conduct ourselves toward each other, what attitude we have with each other, and when there are opportunities for squabbles, how we act. It's not a small thing with our Lord because He called us. Now here again, the text is speaking of a grace of salvation. Calling refers really to what the Holy Spirit does in preaching the gospel, causing the gospel to be proclaimed, and then working in my heart and your heart to believe and to turn from sin and to come unto God and live in fellowship with God. And a central component of the gospel that's proclaimed is peace. Peace with God and peace with our Lord Jesus Christ and peace with each other. That's the content of the Gospel. We saw that already. Our Lord Jesus Christ makes peace. When the preaching of the Gospel now comes to you and to me, it says to you and to me, live consistently. 
Let the world know not just by the fact that you put off fornication and you put off murder and you put off jealousy and you put off the desire of revenge and you put off getting yourselves drunk and getting high on drugs. Let the world know by the fact that you live in peace and harmony with each other. That you have been separated from the world of ungodly unbelievers and brought into the body of Jesus Christ. To this ye are called. The Holy Spirit, as part of the grace of calling, works in you and me to realize how graced we are. What a privilege has been afforded us by the blood and spirit and life of Jesus Christ. And makes us say, I've been delivered from war. Been delivered from enmity. Been delivered from strife. From lying tongues. I will seek peace. I've been called to this. And the Holy Spirit in calling. That is not just in telling. But in His gracious work in me. Makes my heart willing. He creates in me the desire. Third place, the necessity of the admonition, especially for you and for me, is that we have the Lord's Supper this morning. Did you mean it? When you said you were living in unity with each other. Did you mean it? When you said you were part of the same body, brothers and sisters in Christ, and would eat of the same meal. Did you mean it then? And it's necessary that in the week ahead, we let the peace of God rule in our hearts. That's the necessity of the admonition. The heeding of this admonition requires us to watch, to take care, and to guard ourselves in every relationship that we have in the church of Jesus Christ might be a brother or sister in the congregation that we never quite get along with very well. And we can say what there is about him or her that contributes to that. But the heeding of the admonition of the text requires us to ask, what can I do? And of course it may be that I can't change the circumstance. It maybe is so that I can't change the relationship. Maybe I can. Maybe the problem has been my own attitude. But if I can't change the circumstance, then I still have to ask, what can I do to live in peace with him or her? Even though I've been emphasizing that This is not the Holy Spirit's direction to us when a brother or sister has committed a gross sin which would keep him or her out of the kingdom. Yet, even when I go to the brother or sister in that circumstance, peace must rule in my heart. That is to say, I go to the brother or sister and I point out his or her sin and call him or her to repentance, but my motive is not wrath and a desire to get even, and to see you get what you have coming to you, 
my motive is that your sin has interrupted a peaceable and harmonious relationship between you and me as well as between you and God. And I desire that that relationship be restored. So my warnings and my admonitions have the restoring of peace as their goal. In the home life, we have to heed the admonition. The apostle isn't unaware of that. In other words, I'm not just bringing things up to add time to the sermon or try to make applications. I didn't read the last part of the chapter. But he's going to go on in the last part of the chapter, verses 18 and following, to speak of the calling of wives and husbands toward each other, fathers and children, masters and servants, And there's going to be things he says, particularly to the husbands and the fathers, that indicate that he has this idea in mind yet, husbands love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now if you're bitter against them, then the peace of God is not ruling in your heart. And fathers, provoke not your children to anger. And if you are doing that, fathers, then the peace of God is not ruling in your heart. So even the home life. First of all in the home life, because the home is the basic unit of society, we have to heed this admonition. And that means that when we go home tonight, brothers say to themselves, what is it about my brother or sister that gets me so fed up with him or her? And that... I've got to figure it out so I can tell him, change, but so I can say to myself and ask myself, what can I do to promote peace? It may be, married brothers and sisters, that you have by and large a good relationship, and that certainly is a cause of thanksgiving to God, but is there something festering? Is there something that you're sort of both ignoring? Do that no longer. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And part of the addressing of that which is festering must be to ask the question, not what's he or she doing, but am I holding a grudge? Am I not letting the peace of God rule in my heart? Let peace be the umpire. Let peace be the guiding factor when two cross the finish line at the same time. That's the heeding of the admonition. Just to say it's an ongoing calling. And though an appropriate reminder at an applicatory service a word we need to remember for the rest of our lives. Now another question that arises in connection with the admonition is this. Can I? Is this possible? It's a pertinent question both theologically as well as practically. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. There there comes immediately in the minds of some a theological question. How do I let? Something rule in my heart. Is this putting too much on me? Really in the Greek, 
This simply is an imperative. And the word let is supplied in the English translation to try to convey the idea. The point simply is, the peace of God must rule in your heart. And to answer the theological question that might come, then how can it? The answer is because you have peace. The Holy Spirit is not saying, now in order to do this, you've got to go find peace. You've got to go make peace. You have the peace of God. He's given it to you. Manifest it. That takes care of the theological objection that might arise. But there's still the practical one. Can I? Then our old sinful nature is going to show itself again. Really? Really? You want me to give in? You want me to concede? The Holy Spirit doesn't think that's such a strange thing. Yes. I have the life of Jesus Christ in me. There is the possibility. In other words, it's possible by grace. The Holy Spirit isn't coming to the world of ungodly unbelievers and saying, you guys should let peace rule. You guys should just learn to get along. The Holy Spirit is coming to the church of Jesus Christ, sanctified, filled with the life of God, that life that's hid with Christ in God, to use the words of the opening uh, verses of the chapter. And then... To add to that, as far as the possibility goes, we did partake of the table of the Lord. And that table of the Lord was not now only involving the preaching and declaration of the gospel, and it was not only a sign and a seal as is baptism of the fact that the blessings of salvation are for us, but this particular sacrament took the nature and form of a meal. I ate and I drank. And my faith and my life in Christ are strengthened. I'm revived. I have the power in Jesus Christ to do this. And along with all of that, the Holy Spirit gives us an incentive. We can view the incentive in two ways. Again, first of all, from the viewpoint of the broad context, going way back to the beginning of the chapter, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. The first four chapters of, uh, first four verses of the chapter set forth the foundational principle that the whole rest of the chapter is going to unfold. If ye be risen with Christ, are you? And the Holy Spirit and Paul also asks the question or puts the if statement in a way as if to say, I know you are, and you know you are. We don't have that in English. I have to read into your if. If you are my son, you will do this. And then my son has to say, now is dad saying, I am his son? 
Or is dad saying, I'm not his son. The Greek has a way to make very clear what is being said. If ye then be risen with Christ, and you are, set or seek those things which are above, set your affection on things above, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. The incentive is all that Christ has done for us, and the hope of heaven. Where we will live in peace with each other forever. And if Christ died to earn peace for me and you in our relationship with each other. And if in heaven we'll enjoy that peace to all eternity in perfection. Then let us strive on earth to live in peace. That as far as the context is the incentive. But the incentive is found also in the text. And be ye Thankful. Thankful. For what? Well, of course, in the first place, for salvation. And that means for that which is the basis for our being brought together in one body. The atoning work of Christ. God had a quarrel with us. And it was more than just a quarrel. It was more than just a tiff. We offended His majesty, His honor, His glory, our sin did that. He had a lawsuit against us. He could prove it. He had every reason to prove it. He could come to us and say, you did wrong. This is what you did and this and this. And you're getting what you deserve. You get hell. But He showed Himself long-suffering. And forbearing. And sent Jesus Christ. To the death of the cross. And I'm thankful. For that. In the second place. We're thankful for the application of all the benefits. Of atonement and salvation. That we're brought into one body. Is part of the reason for gratitude. That we're not just saved as individuals here and there. We're not all put in our own individual rooms. And we can't have relationships with each other. We're all alone. But we have relationship with God. No, we're brought into a body. And can seek the spiritual well-being of one another. And third. That in this body. Is that brother. And that sister. And that fellow saint, all of this is reason for thanksgiving. When the Spirit says, and be ye thankful, he means because you've been delivered from such a great misery and brought into such great happiness and joy. Now, of course, this thanks must be shown to God. But how do you show thanks to God? What are the two parts of thankfulness that you show to God for salvation? The catechism reminds us the keeping of the law and prayer. And our text is really referring to the keeping of the law, especially the keeping of that great commandment of the law, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
is therefore as an incentive that the Holy Spirit ends the whole list of verbs and commands with this one, and be ye thankful. Forbear, forgive, put on charity, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, and be ye thankful. Probably this is even part of the possibility what we saw grace did in enabling us to obey. But certainly this thankfulness not only enables me to let the peace of God rule, but it puts me in the frame of mind to do so. I want the brother and sister to know how much I love him or her. I want the church of Jesus Christ to know how much I seek the body. And I want that. Not finally so that people say, what a great man I am. But so that the whole world sees the peace of God is found, enjoyed, experienced here. True Peace that passes understanding. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, give us to understand the meaning of the Holy Spirit in our text and to live it in all of our lives. May there be no quarrels among us. Or when they arise, not from our own doing, enable us instead of being offended and put out and defensive to do what we can for the restoring of peace. When then a brother or sister walks in sin or denies cardinal truths, give us also to seek peace, then in the way of seeking his or her repentance. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.